Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So we're in the book of Galatians. So what are these letters in the New Testament? What happened was that um, Paul went out. Paul is somebody who wasn't one of the um, 12 that were with Jesus. He's actually converted after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, He's a newbie to this whole thing, right? And, uh, And his conversion is dramatic because he actually was killing Christians. He was trying to destroy Christianity. And so it is a marvel that God rescues this man and then turns him. He was an expert in the law of Judaism, by the way. He was a Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin. That means he was a leading teacher among all the Jewish people. So his uh, coming to faith in Christ, becoming a follower of Jesus is like an earthquake across Judaism. And Paul goes out into the Gentile areas because Paul uh, uniquely came from a Gentile area, though he was Jewish. And Paul was a Roman citizen And so he had uh, entree into all kinds of places that Jews might not have had. And he went there telling them of Jesus. And everywhere he went, he started churches. But then he left and he moved on. And one of those places, the first place he actually had great success was in a region called Galatia, started a number of churches. Now he's moved on. But guess what? There's people that started coming in behind him wherever he started churches and, and encountering his teaching. Um, And so he would write letters to the churches that he'd been to 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 help them, uh, set them straight in their doctrine, uh, help them if there were problems in the church. And we're studying one of those letters uh, this fall called the letter to the people who lived in in Galatia, the letter to the Galatians. Um, What Paul is going to say in this letter is the same in in the text I'm preaching is that the, the same way we become Christians, the same way we become a part of the kingdom of God, the same way that we are saved or redeemed, which is by grace, right? By the gospel, is the same way we grow as Christians, okay? The same way we're converted, the same way we make our way into the family, is the same way we grow more like Jesus, the head of the family. It's all by grace. So stand up if you're able, And I'm going to read just five verses. Now, Paul's already had a pretty sharp pen with the Galatians. You know, right in the first uh, chapter, he said, I'm astonished, he says, that you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Um, Paul says, anyone who comes to you and preaches a different message than what I preach to you, let him go to hell. I mean, Paul doesn't mince words. And we find that as we start in chapter three, just five verses He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Um, One commentator said, he could have said, in modern day, this might sound like, oh, you dear stupid people. Um, Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who's bamboozled you, you know? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Wait a second. These are people far from Palestine. What does he mean it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? They weren't there. They didn't say it, see it. What, is it, what are you talking about? 
He says, now let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? Did you receive the spirit by obeying the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This then is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. Jesus, thank you that uh, you told us the truth. You spoke through the apostles. You had them write it down. And we've had it ever since. We have your word and uh, we can read it. And through your word, we can know you and we can know the truth about you. Well, thank you for this precious gift. Uh, Lord, we're dense. We need you to teach us your word. We need you to come into this room and move us by what we read and study that comes from you. Would you help? Send your spirit. Send it on the preacher. Send it on the listeners, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So once upon a time, Citrus County was known for maybe three things, right? And then not counting a strange hippo that lives in our county, uh, who actually is named Lucifer. Um, um, not counting Lucifer. Citrus County was known for three things. Citrus County was known for its natural beauty, right? For manatees. Citrus County was known for retirees, manatees, retirees. And Citrus County was known for power. Uh, this was a hub of a power industry. So there were four coal generating power plants and at the center of it all was a nuclear reactor, a nuclear power plant. Power went out from here so much, so many of the jobs, so much of the economy, one third of our county tax bill was paid by the power industry and all of that was humming along. In fact, there were, I was meeting people every week in church that were moving here because construction had already begun in, uh, in Inglis on two new nuclear reactors. This community would have been the hub of, uh, of power in the state of Florida, perhaps in the southeast region. And then in the course of retrofitting the original nuclear reactor, they broke the containment building. The containment building at the reactor cracked. Now, apparently that's a problem. Um, some of us, if it was me, like at my house, would just spackle that thing over. Just, just get some mud, paint it over, and uh, collect our fee and move on. But uh, it didn't work that way. They couldn't fix it. They abandoned that uh, uh, reactor. They abandoned plans to build the other. So a place that, that was intended to be um, the epicenter of power, uh, suddenly um, much less power. The church of Jesus Christ in our culture is cracked. The church of Jesus Christ is to be a place of um, sanctifying power, right? Um, they, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, new things come. So here's the problem. The behavior of professing Christians in our culture doesn't statistically differ from non-Christians in our culture. Marginally different. Um, those who identify as Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to use pornography, to fudge on their taxes, to get divorced, to spend excessively, to gossip, 
to be politically divisive, to be depressed, anxious, to be critical of others, and just to be mean. Just as likely among professing Christians as non-Christians. Where's the power of sanctification? Where's the power that would make us more like Jesus? Where's the power over sin? Uh, what's the solution? Is it to double down on, uh, on the rules, right? We've just got to be more stern. We've just got to uh, take, take you know, we got to thump people with the law. We got we to gotta bring the leather, right? We got um, to be more um, serious about um, this. Reminds me of the um, youth pastor who was writing his lesson on the board before the kids came. And, and there was one of the moms, she was a key volunteer for the youth ministry. She um, had a small group in youth ministry. Her kids were going to youth ministry. They, uh, she's preparing refreshments. And the pastor wrote on the board about the um, unconditional um, love of God. It doesn't depend on our performance. Uh, God's love for us depends on Jesus' performance, right? He wrote that on the board. And when that mom saw that, she almost knocked over the refreshment she was making. She made a beeline towards the room. She got in the youth pastor's face and she said, that's the last thing my kids need. The last thing, they, they get plenty of talks about grace. What my kids need is rules, more rules. Obey, that's what they need to hear. Well, here's the problem. Uh, more law, a stricter moral code, it doesn't work. Do you know that people who grew up in churches that taught total abstinence from alcohol, right? You got that? No, you can't drink. Anybody drinks, you're going to hell. You know, total abstinence. Studies show that people who grew up in those churches are three times more likely to be alcoholics um, than those who didn't grow up in those churches. Remember when, uh, when my kids were little, there was this promise ring thing, you know? So parents would give their kid a promise ring. And I don't know where they gave boys promise rings. I don't remember that. But I know they gave girls promise rings. And the whole idea was save yourself until marriage. Okay, This ring is to remind you that you are promised up to a future spouse. You're promised to God. So save yourself until marriage. And that was the thing. And everyone did it and blah, blah. And um, you know, the problem is, is that they've studied that since and Kids who were given promise rings and wore promise rings were just as likely to be sexually active prior to marriage than kids who didn't make the promise, who didn't you. You see, the law that doesn't work. It reminds me of this um, uh, old reformer, a mental uh, health reformer. I think it was in the 1800s in England. Samuel Took was his name. And he decided that they were failing as a culture so deeply in dealing with the mentally ill. He had a new idea. Let's just dress them up like they're not mentally ill. Let's keep them groomed. Let's cut their hair. Let's, you know, uh, let's teach them how to pre present themselves. Let's give them nice clothes. Let's school them on going to tea parties and being civil and having manners and, and being refined and all of that. How do you think that all worked? It didn't work at all, right? All they do is get into tea parties and wreak havoc there because we already tried that. It's called the Pharisees, right? What did Jesus say of the Pharisees? They had more rules than anybody had rules. They were serious about the rules. I mean, you go to hell if, uh, if you broke the rules, right? They taught the rules about everything. Every, they tithe their, their dill, their mint, all their herbs, everything so carefully in every area of their life to do everything the law said. 
And what did Jesus say of them? They are like white washed tombs. You know, you can make a tomb look gorgeous, but maybe forget that underneath there's, there's the dead body. You know, it's really a dead body under there. And so you can create a, a facade of obedience and inside there's death. Um, no, works, law, um, um, doesn't work. Uh, more rules doesn't work. How do we, where do we get the power to be made new? Paul says, oh gosh, you foolish Galatians, the power is right under your nose. It's the gospel. Not more rules, more Jesus. Ready? Got a sermon outline? Let's go. Turn it in after the service or I'll double your tithe. There. There's a rule for you. Um, I really got two points in this sermon. Here's the first point. If you want gospel power in your life, if you want to grow in your faith and in your joy of being a Christian, then you, then you need to go back to your conversion. You need to remember what converted you because the very thing that converted you is what will give you the power to overcome um, um, sin and rebellion in your own life. You got it? You got to go back to your conversion. Um, and the second thing we're going to um, say um, is that uh, you have to learn to preach the gospel to yourself. You don't preach the law to yourself. You stupid idiot, why did you do that, right? Um, you're such a loser. Um, you don't preach um, contrary to the gospel to yourself, but that's our nature, isn't it? Is voices inside of us telling us uh, ways that are unhealthy. We actually have to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, right? So that's what I got. So if you're on a short leash, you need to leave, you got it now. That's pretty much it. Um, uh, but let's start with the first. Um, if you're gonna get gospel power, you gotta go back to your conversion. In a sense, you have to go back to the cross, back to the crucifixion. So what are the Galatians doing that Paul would call them foolish? He says, you've been, you've been bewitched, right? Um, they're yielding to false teachers. These are Jews, as I said. These are Jews who had, who had also were claiming now to be Christians. But they would follow Paul around wherever he taught, and they would say to the people, um, uh, yes, yes, follow Jesus. Yes, Jesus was crucified for you. Yes, Jesus was rectorated, but that's not enough. That's cheap. That's easy. That's, that's like a grace, 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 grace. Um, that's not going to get the job done. To be the real deal, you've got to keep the laws of Judaism as well. You've got to keep the kosher laws. You have to keep the eating laws. You have to keep the cleanliness laws. And not only that, if you're a male, you have to be circumcised. You understand what they were saying? The crucifixion, the shedding of Jesus' blood isn't enough to be the real deal. You've got to be cut. That's what circumcision, you didn't have circumcision without what? Without bleeding, without blood, without being cut. Yeah, Jesus was cut. Jesus was hung up on a tree. Jesus was killed. Jesus shed his blood. But don't be fooled. You've got to shed your blood too if you're going to grow, if you're going to be the real deal. That was their message and Paul's countering that by what he um, teaches here. Look at what he says again in verses one and two. Foolish Galatians, come on. It was before your eyes that Jesus was portrayed as crucified. Let's go back to the crucifixion. Now let me ask this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by your obedience to the law 
Or did you receive it by hearing this graceless message, by putting your faith in the grace of the crucified Messiah? That's what Paul says. We gotta go back to the crucifixion. This is the gospel. Christ was crucified, and in being crucified, he accomplished it. He did it all. It is finished. You know what I mean? Jesus did it all. Do you know who wasn't on the cross? You. You contributed nothing. Christ's crucifixion, it was just him. You, aren't, you, you don't contribute to your own salvation. It is finished. It was done. All the atoning for our sin is done and completed. How many people think, if, if you talked to non-Christians and you said, tell me what you think a Christian is, they would say a Christian is somebody who has this moral code they're supposed to follow. And too many Christians, unfortunately, think the same thing. Being a Christian is that there's this moral code that you're supposed to follow. So non-Christians are not drawn to Christianity because what's very obvious to them is that all the Christians they know don't what? They don't follow that moral code. Like love your neighbor, things like that. They don't see that in Christians, but they don't understand what Christianity is. But unfortunately, too many people who go to church don't understand what Christianity is. It's not following a moral code. Jesus didn't come to give us a moral code. Uh, he didn't come to give us spiritual principles to live by. He didn't say, okay, I take care of your sin, but the rest of it's up to you. Follow me. If you don't follow me, you're screwed, right? That's not what he said. He came to do for us what we couldn't do. Everything necessary for our eternal salvation and life with him and reconciliation to God was accomplished through his atoning death and his resurrection. The gospel is not an invitation for us to do something, but it's an announcement of what has been done for us. The law says do. The law says do this, do this. And you know what? No matter how well you do it, you didn't do it well enough. Because we can't do it. The whole purpose of the law was to show us we have no hope except for in Jesus. The law says do, the gospel says it's done. It's done, Jesus did it. He completed it, he did it alone. The work of Christ can't be added to. It's finished, tetelestai. A couple of weeks ago I told you the meaning of the word tetelestai, that's the word Jesus said on the cross. It is finished, we translate it. To tell us die was a commercial term. It's paid in full. That's what you'd stamp on a bill. You went into a shop owner, you paid what you owed, stamped the word to tell us die. This bill paid in full. One man came to me the next week in our church and he had tattooed the word to tell us die down his arm. It's a long word. I'm glad, I didn't, I'm glad he didn't put all the words Jesus said on the cross. Um, but not a bad thing to tattoo on your forehead backwards. I'm not really suggesting this. Um, every morning to wake up and say, it's finished. He's done it. Um, you know, the problem with North American Christianity is we often come to church and, and, and what we walk away is, wow, I'm a failure. There's all sorts of things I'm supposed to be doing and I'm not doing them. Someone in this church told me they grew up in a, in a family very committed, very committed to Jesus, homeschooling, 
um, family. They had lots of children, a very serious Bibles around their house. They read the Bible. They learned the Bible. They, they learned the catechisms. Um, they had a lot of uh, uh, things to keep them away from the secular world. And uh, parents are just very um, ardent and diligent and, and really wanting to raise their kids uh, to be Jesus followers. And they went to a church that was like that, that people in the church knew their Bibles. They had their Bibles. They were about the Bible. And, uh, and she said, but I couldn't help but uh, experience and know. And, and he, other people would tell me that every week when they walked out of church, their experience was one of feeling like a failure. One of that they, they didn't measure up. They weren't doing enough. When people left church, they left more weighted down. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? What did they do? They don't lift your burdens off of you. They lay more burdens on you. The experience of gathering for worship, cumulatively for a lot of people, is to be told what a louse you are and to walk out feeling, I'm going to try to do better. Or screw it, it doesn't matter, I never get better. Um, So uh, how important to understand um, the gospel. It's go go back to the cross. We don't do, he did. Look at what he did. You're not contributing anything, right? You didn't save yourself. It's not up to you. You can't do it. Um, To be converted is to put your faith in what Jesus has accomplished. To make your obedience a requirement of your reconciliation nullifies what Jesus did and it's offensive to God. It declares the work of Jesus inadequate, insufficient. So what I want you to do this morning is experience the power of conversion afresh. Experience again the wonder you had when you know your sins, when you knew your sins were great, but they were forgiven, they were born away, and that you were reconciled um, to God and you contributed nothing. I want you to remember it. I want you to experience it. I want you to re- rejoice in it. You are not lost. You are not, um, you, you are not dirty. You are not foul. You are not a failure. You are a child of God. You are adopted by the grace of God. You are beloved all because of Jesus. Think of that woman caught in adultery. How'd you like that? Caught in adultery, thrown at Jesus' feet. There's people there standing there ready to stone her. She's just a, she's just a a ploy, right? She's just a, a prop in an attempt to trap Jesus, right? And they come to Jesus and say, this woman is caught in adultery. And what, what would you do? And Jesus says, is any among you without sin? And they all have to walk away, right? And Jesus says to her, where are your condemners now? And then Jesus says what? Neither do I what? Neither do I condemn you. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that in your life? Jesus saying in your worst moment of your life, neither do I condemn you. You're caught and experience Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. It's the power of that love that brings obedience to our lives. Neither do I condemn you. There are people in this room right now that you have never been able to escape the shame of your sin. And some of you feel the guilt and you're motivated by guilt. And some of you might be really hard work. You might go to Bible studies and small groups and you might never miss church because, because of shame. 
because you still feel the shame and the weight of things you've done in your life. And, and whenever pastors talk about divorce, or they talk about adultery, they talk about pornography, they talk about something else, you just sink lower in your seat because it just awakens in you the shame that is deep inside of you. You need to hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you. I died on the cross for all that you did. I paid for it. You're mine. I don't even see it anymore. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. That shame is destroying you. I came to take your shame away. Some of you have done vile things. Some of you could be in jail if people knew what you did. Neither do I condemn you. It's radical. Gospel. Grace. You know, there's other people here whose problem is a little different. You really have a hard time seeing yourself as being that bad. You've never experienced the wonder of forgiveness because I'm not sure you ever really did any of that stuff. Well, that's kind of my story. You know, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up going to Christian school. I grew up going to church. I, I remember falling asleep on my mother's lap when the pastor, well, I grew up at a church where the pastor gave altar calls. That means at the end of the service, you want to get Jesus, you go forward. I went forward like 70 times. Um, I think my parents just got sick of it. Like, stop that. Um, and I just, I, I grew up in the church. You don't um, smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. And, um, you know, um, I didn't uh, ever, uh, not, I didn't ever, um, I get drunk. I never uh, drugs. I never um, was sexually active. N- nothing. Oh, I was a perfect child, and um, um, of course I was rotten in my own ways, but not in those really bad, you know, ways. And um, and I remember when I was working. My first job was in the Miami Seaquarium, and uh, and uh, and my car broke down way out in Key Biscayne. It was a long ride to my house from there, and and. Uh, and so I had to hitch a ride with a couple of girls that worked at this aquarium. And I remember we got in the car and they rolled up their windows real tight in their car and they pulled a joint out from under the dashboard and they lit it up and they asked me if I wanted to join them. You think I was tempted to join them? Are you kidding me? I was in the backseat going, <gasps> trying to, I thought they're going to deliver me home and I'm going to be high. I don't even know what that is, but I don't want to be that. And all I know is my dad's going to smell it on me and he's going to beat the tar out of me from one end of the yard to the other. I am doomed. (laughs) Then I went to college. (laughs) And then I did some things that, um, that I knew in my mind and in my ecology of, uh, of sinfulness would get you a, the express train to hell. And I can remember in the face of my utter failure, um, weeping, crying, and experiencing the forgiveness of God. You know, I, I remember when I was younger, I, I, I'd say the one, I, I realized I didn't love people well, or probably not at all. And, and the Bible said the one who's forgiven much, what? The one who's forgiven much loves much, but I never felt forgiven much because I never felt that I sinned that much, right? But I remember that moment in college saying, uh, for the first time in my life, I, I know what it feels like to be forgiven. It almost felt like I was what? Converted. Converted. 
The first time you're standing there at the cross and realizing, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got no goodness in me at all. That's where I want you to go. I want you to go. E.V. Hill. E.V. Hill's one of the greatest preachers, certainly in modern America, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles for about 44 years. And the greatest sermon I've ever heard preached in my lifetime is when he preached his wife's funeral. And he tells a story in there about his wife. He calls her baby, baby, all throughout the um, uh, funeral service. And he tells a story of um, uh, how his wife came from prominence, how his wife's father was a, a college president, how uh, both of his parents were educated. They, uh, both of his wife's parents were educated. They had PhDs. His, um, his wife's um, um, father was an ambassador, U.S. ambassador to some country in Latin America. They were prominent, prestigious people. And she married him, and he was a, a, a nobody, a blue-collar, poor guy. And she married him. She came from royalty. He came from nothing. And... Um, and then uh, in their marriage, he decided that uh, he was going to buy a gas station. And she said, don't, don't do that. And he said, well, I can make a lot of money doing that. And she said, that's, a, that's, a, you, that's foolish. And he did it anyway. And she was right. He lost everything they had. They didn't have much. And he lost it all. And, uh, and he said he came home one night in the midst of that debacle. And, uh, and all the lights were out in his house. And he said, uh, when he came in, his wife had candles on the table and candle lit on the counter and in the kitchen and all around. And uh, she said, you work so hard, I, I just thought we'd eat by candlelight. And he thought, sounds good. And uh, liking the way this night's going. And um, he went in the bathroom, he said, and he flicked on the light switch so he could wash his hands and the lights didn't come on. And he walked out and he said, baby, they turned the lights out on us, didn't they? And she started to cry and she said, you work so hard. You work so hard. And, uh, but we don't have any money and I couldn't pay the light bill. And, and then Evie Hill's crying in his sermon, remembering telling this story. And he says, she could have at that moment ruined me. Only he says it more like, she could have ruined me. And I'm in the hole. She could have ruined me. But she said, let's eat by candlelight. He said that moment of forgiveness changed his life. Do you know that? That's where the power is when you know that God had every right to stomp you out. But he loved you. It's a guy years ago was taking his kids out of our school. His kids needed to be in our school. His family needed the kids to be in our, our school. And I, I talked to him about it and I, I begged him about it. He said, I don't have the money. We can't do it financially. We just can't do it. I said, I'll pay. I'll raise the money. We'll find the money. The money is going to happen. Forget about the money. Don't use the money as an excuse that's taken care of. And you know what he said? I will not be a charity case. And you know what I wanted to say to him? You stupid fool. Who, what, what? Do you not know? Are you a Christian? We're all a charity case. 
There's nothing but charity cases, right? None of us pays our way. None of us has got a dime towards um, uh, being right with God. Jesus paid it all, right? That's what you gotta go back to and remember. Go back to the cross. Go back to the crucifixion. Go back and see him there. And hear, hear him say, it's finished, I paid for it. Neither do I condemn you. And second, oh, wait a minute, I'm still on the first point. One more part of the, <laughs> I gotta speed up. As, uh, as, as Christ's crucifixion, I, I just want you to see this. Um, the beauty of the crucifixion. I, I wanna talk about what I, I told you. He says, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What does that mean? What it means is they weren't there, obviously. They, they didn't live in Palestine. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They didn't see the crucifixion. Paul's saying, when I preached it to you, it became vivid and clear to you. It grabbed your hearts. When they heard the preaching of Christ's crucifixion, um, they saw it. They saw it. They saw Christ's suffering. They saw his devotion to them. They saw his blood uh, pouring from him as he prayed in Gethsemane. They saw that he went to the cross, abandoned by his own apostles. They saw his devotion. They saw him naked there, people humiliating them. They saw his love. They saw that it was for them. And Jesus became beautiful and lovely to them. That's what it means to be converted. That's what it means to be converted. Is you see the beauty of Jesus. You fall in love with Jesus. How many people say, I'm a Christian because I believe the Bible. I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Kind of like saying I'm married because the, you know, I found this woman, I, she was a woman, I'm a man, she's a woman, she's a candidate then. And, um, and you know, I found out about, I, I looked up information on the internet and I found out her college degree in the township. I found out all these facts about her, so we're married. What would you say? Well, what about falling in love, right? What about um, your heart being um, handed over? What about that vow that you say, till death do us part, that I'm committed to you and your well-being uh, all the way till I die, I will lay down my life for you. You see what I mean? Conversion isn't just a, re a recitation of facts, a recitation of a creed where you say, okay, I'm in, you know, I believe it. Um, no, it's falling um, in love with Jesus. Um, when did you fall in love? Do you remember it? Um, you see, you're not converted if you, if you just believe in Jesus. Um, believing in Jesus, I mean, honestly, if you go outside and you look at the stars, you ought to believe in God, right? Believing in God doesn't convert anybody. No, it, it means that you've fallen in love with Jesus. You've understood. You've, you've been there at the cross. You've seen it. Um, we love him because what? We love him. We love him. That's what a Christian is. We love him because he first loved us. If he loves us, his love for us produces love for him. And that love leads to obedience. Conversion is to experience grace. It's to come alive to the depths of God's love. And that leads to obedience. Why do we attend worship? Because we love him. Why do we give money? Because we love him. Why do we do hurricane relief? Because we love him. Why do we obey him? Because we 
love him. Do you know how many people through the years I've heard walk out of church and say to me with this, this look on their face, they say, I've always gone to church, but it never moved me. Understanding the gospel changed everything. It's, it's possible, they've said, I've never been a Christian before. Do you know that feeling? I fall in love with God. Um, so I'm teaching the pastor's class. I love to teach the pastor's class. I love to tell the story of the prodigal son because sometimes when I'm telling it, I feel like I discover it uh, anew for the first time. So I'm gonna tell it to you real fast. So, you know, Jesus um, is getting hammered by people because he's hanging out and ministering to prostitutes and, and to tax collectors, the most hated people in culture. So the religious conservative religious leadership looks at that and says, he can't be from God. He can't be the Messiah. He's not a rabbi. He's not worthy. Look at the company he keeps, right? So in response to that, Jesus tells three stories. The first, a shepherd loses a sheep and he goes out and, sh and searches, 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 and he finds it. The second story is a woman has 10 coins. She loses one. She tears her house upside down, searches, searches, searches. She's find it. Then the third story he tells is what we call the prodigal son story in which a man loses his what? Not a sheep, not a coin, but a son. When the, when the shepherd loses the sheep, he searches. When the woman loses the coin, she searches. When the man loses the son, what's missing in the third story? Nobody searches. Who's supposed to search? See, the story isn't just about the prodigal son. It's about this older brother. And the older brother won't search. He doesn't care. That's the whole point of the parable. The parable is not about the younger son. The parable is about the older son. How do we know that? Because who's Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. And who are the Pharisees in that story? They're the older brother. Jesus said, I come to the earth to eat with prostitutes and tax collectors because you don't. Because you're just like that older brother who never went and looked. That's what older brothers do. They take responsibility for their younger siblings. But he says to the Pharisees, you don't care, so I came to care. I came to find them. I came to seek them. And you know what else? I'm teaching them this week and it breaks to me uh, uh, in a fresh way. You know, why else the old, you know why else the older brother was mad? Why was he mad that his younger brother welcomed that profligate running around with whores son of his and welcomed him home who had squandered all his money? Because the father had already given the younger son all his inheritance. And now when the father welcomed them back, guess whose money that was? It was going to cost the older brother for the welcoming of the younger brother back. It was all his money. Guess who your older brother is? His name is Jesus. And you know what? He spent all his money on you. He welcomes you home. Have you ever experienced that? To be welcomed home. Wow. You have an older brother who pursues you. And Paul made that crucifixion so vivid they were converted. Have you been converted? You can be converted right now. You don't even have to close your eyes. Right now, wherever you're seated in this room, you can say, Jesus, will you be my older brother? I am feeling right now that you've pursued me. It, right in this room, you have pursued me. You searched for me, just like the shepherds searched for the sheep. I'm your younger brother or sister, and you found me. And I like that you looked for me. I like that I mattered to you, and you found me.
You can be converted right now. Just tell Jesus, I'm gonna be yours. All right, one last thing I gotta say. Um, not only to, to have power in our life, we have to go back to the cross. We have to go back to our conversion. We have to go back. But there's something else. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Uh, and that's, that's the, just the second point. Um, where do we get the power and ability to grow in obedience and character and love? We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Too many Christians acknowledge that salvation is by faith and grace and the work of Christ alone. And we contribute nothing but to progress in the faith, they feel like it's up to us. Jesus, you know, saves us, but if we're gonna progress, it's our effort, it's our diligence, it's our striving. And that's why we lack power. We've been converted by grace, but we abandon it for our effort. Um, churchgoers too often believe that we're saved by grace, but we grow by applying biblical principles. Christians too often draw their assurance of God's love from their religious performance, not the performance of Jesus. And underneath all of our sin is a refusal to rest in Christ's righteousness, and it's a drive to produce our own, to make ourselves lovely and acceptable. So how do we grow? Listen, this is the secret to spiritual power. Richard Lovelace was a professor and author who changed my life. He says, the faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is the root of holiness. The root of holiness is that I go to the warmth of God's love to grow in the faith, right? And I don't find, uh, I, I don't warm my heart at other fires. I wanna help you understand what that means. Everybody has a strategy, a strategy we employ, right? To warm our heart, to perfect ourselves. Listen to what he says in verse three. Are you foolish? You began by the Holy Spirit, that's how you became a Christian, but now you're gonna perfect yourself by the flesh, by your own effort? Not gonna work. You know, I had a strategy I don't have time to tell you, but my strategy really, uh, I had to look back in my life when I became adult, I realized to was avoid humiliation in my life. I had four older siblings and their goal was that I not avoid humiliation um, throughout childhood. I realized when I got to be an adult, I had never water skied, I'd never snow skied, I'd never ice skated, I'd never roller skated. Um, uh, all things that you fall down a lot, all things in which your siblings would laugh at you and mock you. I wore orthopedic shoes from the time I was a little boy. I never wore tennis shoes. I stumbled and fell a lot. And I realized looking back at my life, I crafted a pathway through life that said, I will not be humiliated. So I would only do things I felt that I was competent at. And it robbed me from all kinds of joy in my life. But it was a strategy, wasn't it? It wasn't a strategy based on the love of God and the comfort. It was a strategy of self-protection, right? And I worked that strategy. And, and I struggle to work today. And last night when I left the house telling my wife, this sermon is a pile of mess. And I'm gonna go, I have to go do this. It's bad when the preacher doesn't even know what he's saying. Um, and... Um, and then even on the way to church, I said, yeah, but you know what you're gonna tell those people? You're gonna tell the people to warm themselves at the fires of God's love, not at your own performance. Guess what? You're gonna to have to apply the sermon while you're preaching it. I still have to fight that. 
Sometimes people say you're a good preacher. I only wish they knew I'm a good preacher often because in defiance of God, because I have a strategy to not be humiliated. Many of the best workers in churches are unhealthy because they warm themselves at the fire of self-justification. You know what I'm saying? So if you have a critical spirit, apply the gospel to your heart. What does the gospel say? I mean, where in the world do you get off being better than someone else? You deserve to be damned to hell. You've received the mercy and grace of God. How dare you look down on anybody else? You're worse than they are. That's the way you deal with a critical spirit. You preach the gospel to yourself, right? Um, You spend too much money, you preach the gospel to yourself. You know what? Whatever I want to buy, whatever I crave, it will not satisfy my heart. In fact, it'll probably make me feel ashamed that I can't control my impulses. Do you know what? Jesus is what, I, is what my heart ultimately craves, not whatever I think I've got to have. That new boat, that new this, that new um, appliance, that new whatever, that new kitchen. Um, why do I yell at referees at, at basketball games? This is just a hypothetical. I've never been uh, done that, but it's a hypothetical. Shut up, Scott Jackson. Um, um, why would you get mad at, at, at teachers? Why would you get, because you realize that you warm yourself at the fire of your children's performance and your children's success because it makes you feel better as a parent. You're using your children. And you preach the gospel to yourself. You know what, I'm a child, I'm a child of God. I'm loved and adored by God. He gets a kick out of me. I don't have to use my kids. My kids don't have to be uh, A plus honor roll Um, chronicle player of the year. They don't have to be. It doesn't matter. Got it? All these ways, you've got to preach the gospel um, to yourself. Um, Let me just say this. Um, That's the most important uh, thing is to realize that uh, Jesus is what you really need. And whatever your anger and whatever your, you know, whatever you're going for, Uh, It's Jesus you ultimately need. And when you get Jesus and his love, uh, it gives you power to obey. So I went to school with a guy in in, um, um, graduate school, seminary, and and we used to sign up to go preach on weekends. It was a way to uh, make money, uh, of course, and to spread the gospel. And... um, um, and because and, there were all these little country churches. I went to school in Mississippi. There were all these country churches. They couldn't afford a preacher, and so you could sign up, and you'd get assigned to a church. It could be two, three, four hours away. Sometimes you drive all the way there on Sunday, preach your little heart out. They give you 25 bucks when you walked out the door. Um, it's like, <coughs> that's it. Um, and, uh, and the worst thing was, then sometimes, am I disillusioning you about pastors and their motives? Um, the worst thing was, they would, uh, some guy would come up and say, hey, um, I'm assigned to like take you to lunch today. You want to go to lunch at my house? And it's like, it's the last thing you want to do. You're going to get trapped there. You're going to eat his wife's rutabaga spread or something. And uh, you, you, know, you get to his house and they say, oh, we haven't even prepared the meal yet. It'll be about three, you know, and you sit there. Meanwhile, all the NFL games are happening, like <laughs> some of you are thinking now. And um, um, you know, you're just trapped there. Well, well, this friend of mine went somewhere. Somebody invites him to lunch and uh, and he's like thinking, how can I say, oh, you know, I, I've got a term paper to write or, oh, I can't. And, and, but in the service, um, his, there was a, a, about a 22-year-old girl playing the piano, and she was beautiful. And, uh, and the man said, we're just going home for dinner. And he said, by the way, have you met my daughter? 
and he got in that car faster than you can uh, admit, went to the house, he said, after uh, dinner, he and the daughter, and finally at one point, uh, they'd really been there a long time, uh, this, this uh, sweet um, girl looked at him and said, hey, you want to take a walk together? What do you think his answer was? <laughs> the same answer that yours should be when the most beautiful person in the universe says, walk with me. When Jesus says to you, walk with me. Walk with me. Say yes. That's your best contribution ever, Catherine. <laughs> Say yes, because Jesus is the only one who can warm your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need power. We need to stand at the foot of the cross and be awed afresh, fall in love with you afresh so that we can say no to sin and self and rebellion, bitterness, anger. And we can say yes to you because you said yes to the Father when he sent you on the mission to find us and make us your brothers and sisters. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.